So you sent back your Apple Watch. Yeah, it it wasn't the best. It was funny for me because I'm not normally a first adopter. Mm-hmm. I was late to the iPhone. I think I bought an iPad 1 when they came out. But by then, the, the idea that I could get one for work and, you know, it might... I was, I was proven wrong, but it might, you know, supplant the computer that I have to lug around all the time, that type of thing. But Apple Watch came out. I remember I got one, and a lot of folks at work were like, oh, look at him, you know, being cool. He's the fanboy. Fanboy. And it, I, I think it might be personality-driven. In fact, when we called Apple to turn it back in, to send it back under warranty and, you know, before the 30 days, the person on the phone actually said, yeah, you know, we're getting a lot of returns. I don't know if they should have said that, but mm. it was sort of this comment about, you know, people either have a use for it or they don't. So the things I really liked about it, you know, the health monitor tracking, the the checking your heart rate, that type of stuff. But of course, you could get a Fitbit for less than $500 mm-hmm. or $300 and, and that sort of thing. The other piece, though, was I got the Apple Watch. Maybe this is the iPad thing all over again. I got the Apple Watch thinking it would replace the phone because as a dean, I'm, you know, I cross cut between meetings with pastors and people in the city, donors, whatever it might be, and obviously as faculty. And I have staff meeting, I have a staff that reports to me, et cetera. Well, it's, you know, a faux pas these days to pull your phone out every time it buzzes Mm -hmm. and look down at it and maybe text somebody back, even if it's important. People think you're just texting, you know, your buddy about mm-hmm. the, the game or something. And the watch, you have to talk into it, <laughs> which would be even worse. Like, hold on, uh, I'll be there at five, you know, that kind of thing. But also, it has to be tethered to the phone. So I didn't lose my phone. I just had two things with me at all times. And some of the functionality of it wasn't ideal for me. Yeah, it just became a personal thing. I, I, I think the cost of it associated with the value I don't know. I, I suppose I have some sort of Star Trek ideal in my mind <laughs> you know, that I could talk into it or that some like 3D keyboard will pop up. That would be pretty amazing. Yeah. A mole could be like the accented E for that's right in Spanish <laughs> or something. Yeah. And it's not really that. It has features that are pretty awesome that I didn't need but were luxuries. And I felt kind of guilty about that, I suppose. Huh. But the the things that it provided sort of a wireless, more voice-activated connection to your phone, I guess, might be what it is. Mm-hmm. So that was my experience. And, you know, I just, it's like, eh, I'll do something else. So, mm-hmm. but you love yours, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I, love might be strong. I think the iPhone is something you, you, you love. You love it. But uh, I love it. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you just watch people with iPhones. It is kind of intimate. They kind of hold them like babies, right? Yeah. And you kind of cradle it and you just sort of, gl- it glows and looks at you. Uh, the watch is a bit. The comparison is it's kind of like the the uh, hovercraft or or it's the the little spaceship that leaves the Enterprise. But um, yeah, but I really like mine. Um, I, and and the test is if I don't wear it, do I miss it? And I find I do. I like sort of being able to glance at my steps. I kind of like mm. nerding out about the weather and knowing the temperature right now. It's kind of cool. And uh, the other killer feature is your next appointment. So it's got it's a little yeah. clock, and it's like, oh, yeah, I have something at 1030. So yeah. that, that's a nice feature. And, and the notifications are nice. Um, so I am an Apple fanboy, so I tend to want to get what's, what's, what I can that interests me that's new. 
So I was excited, and at first I wasn't sure, but I've really enjoyed it. And then I got Jenny one, and and she really hates anything new. And like you said, uh, you know, you, they've Apple's got a pretty generous return policy. So I said, well, just give it ten days, and if you don't like it, we'll take it back. And she ended up keeping hers too, uh, mostly because she loses her phone all the time. So it's got a little ringer to f- help you find your phone. And then yeah. also just being able to glance and see a text message is pretty nice. And you're right that it's interruptive to look at your phone, even if it's important. Or, or And sometimes I'll tell someone, I'll say, hang on, I'm just adding that as an appointment. So I sort of yeah, tell them what I'm yeah. doing so they don't think I'm texting someone else. It's like I'm actually doing something related to what we're talking about. or Which you could totally lie about. You could totally you could, lie about that. You could. I like, wouldn't, but you could. My, my wife never texts me at this hour. I better right. see what this Let is. Let see what this is. I'll pick up milk. Yeah, yeah that's right. Go, go heels. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Watching the right. score on the game. That's uh, right. The interesting thing about the watch is even that's a little interruptive. So if you're talking to someone, you really can't glance at your watch either because that conveys boredom. So you even even oh, when you true. feel your wrist, uh, you feel it vibrate. You still have to kind of play it cool. You can't just. Look I forgot at about the wrist. Watch. Yeah, you look at your. It looks like you're looking like oh, what time? Like, what How long time have I been in here? It? Yeah, and try to flicking around, seeing what the notification is. Well, I found the you know for those who have never had a watch that are listening, the the funky thing about the Apple Watch is to turn it on. You can click it, which mm-hmm. if you're driving, that was a problem. The other need then for me was with the Apple Watch was not that I do this much at all, but. I didn't want to have anything that would distract me when I'm driving. But I, sometimes you need to see, like, I'm driving to the store. My wife says, hey, you forgot your wallet. You know, I, mm-hmm. I want to be able to see that. Mm-hmm. That's, that's happened before. Yeah. <laughs> but I found that, that, you know, you have to turn your wrist over to get it to activate. Like, it, And I found I was like, I'm going to get carpal tunnel. Like yeah. Flipping it. I, I wish it was a little, I mean, I can see how it's hard to program that exactly. Yeah, uh, you know what's the magic arm raise twist there? But it must have no battery too. I mean, it's got to have a tiny battery. Yeah. So they're they're doing whatever they can to preserve time. I mean, if it went off, uh, you know, out of battery every three hours, it'd be useless. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's it's. I'm sure they'll get better. It's like if we went back and found an iPhone one with like the initial operating system on it, mm-hmm. we would think it was you know from the Flintstones. Yeah, the first iPhone was four hundred dollars, no App Store, a very different beast. And was still great. It was amazing as you could check your weather. <laughs> yes, yeah. Like, Ooh. And you had your music, and and you could check your email, and and the web browsing was what was awesome on the iPhone that I think killed the BlackBerry because I had a BlackBerry Pearl and really liked it. It was slim and had the keyboard, but when you went on the internet, it was just awful. Yeah, you just really couldn't. The browser, you know, just wouldn't render things. But uh, yeah, the watch has been kind of nice. And um, of course, you also live in North Carolina, so. The weather matters. Like in Florida, it's like, what brand of hot. hot is it today? Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's 95, not 96. Okay. Good morning, you know. Vietnam. Robin Williams right. is hot. It's, it's not that bad. But <laughs> I will say I live in North Florida now, thankfully. Uh-huh. And um, it was a shock because I grew up in Central Florida. So born in Orlando, grew up about an hour south of there. And two things I didn't realize growing up. One, you live near the beach, you get the wind, which is much nicer. Hmm. But there was one time, and I found out the reason why this is, I drove from my parents' house about three hours away up to here, and it was around Christmas. We were visiting. It was 15 to 17 degrees cooler by the time I drove those three hours. And it wasn't this precipitous weather drop. And I was like, what is going on? And I asked somebody that would have known this stuff. And he said, oh, when you get above a certain point in North Florida, you cross out of subtropic into whatever the next band of... Mm type of weather, like the Georgia weather, the, the South Carolina weather. Like a mid-woofer sub? 
exactly. Yes, exactly. Tweeter. Yeah, yeah I did, but it's subtropic to something. I don't know what it is, but and he said you're gonna have. And I noticed it. It's, it. You don't get really, really high temperatures here. Mm. Like so, summer will be low to mid nineties when it's really hot. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, you don't get hurricanes land here. They either go Florida proper down south, or they bounce off and go to you nice. <laughs> or to Boston. Yeah. So whenever a really bad tropical storm does come through here, people wig out. I mean, it's like the apocalypse is happening because there might be gale force winds. Whereas we used to throw parties during them because <laughs> we knew the, the lights were going to go out so we could have the day off tomorrow. That's pretty funny. But it, I do think you always want what you don't have growing up, like in terms of weather. You know, if you grew up in a warm weather, you love cooler, colder weather. It's just like a vacation. I think it signals vacation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we lived in England, we'd fly back to Orlando to visit family. It was just packed with Brits ready to come and bake in Orlando because yes, they thought yeah. it was phenomenal. Yeah. You want the opposite, you know. Yeah, that's right. I've got a lot of pet peeves. One of them is when someone shows up here and insults our weather or our driving in ice. So you get someone from New England comes down and, and insults us for shutting down the city because we had ice. Uh, oh, yeah. And, and yeah. I think and they and they act as if it's a question of experience. And I'm thinking, no, it's not experience. It's the fact that you guys have a whole fleet of vehicles that can scrape right. the roads and we don't. So, you know, yeah. good luck driving on ice, buddy. Yeah, but, you haven't uh, learned to leave the area where it snows on you all the time. <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember, yeah, the, the big snow apocalypse in Atlanta. What was it a couple of years ago? Mm-hmm. People had to sleep on the highways because they, they couldn't get them out. Which was a horrible thing. I, mm-hmm. don't, I didn't hear that anyone died, but still, it's really horrible. Yeah. I can't imagine having like a toddler and maybe a kid or something that long. No food. No bathroom. Yeah, or bathroom. But you can understand why. They just, that never happens in Atlanta. Yeah. So why would they have a fleet of all this stuff and, and salt to, for the roads? You know? Yeah, we don't have the equipment or anything. And so uh, no one can drive on ice, really. I mean, you might get a little better at snow, but ice is pretty, you know, by definition. I fly up to Boston, you know, three, two, three, maybe four times a year depending on what for, there's always a early February trustee meeting. And as a dean, I have to go to that. Mm-hmm. And once I flew up, and this was right when they had had more snow in, I think it was maybe two years ago, they had more snow in Boston than in the history of Boston or something like this, which is saying something. Mm-hmm. And I remember I landed, I thought, uh-oh, you know, how am I going to get out? Because it's a 45-minute drive. It was already ready. Yeah. Like they had, everything was piled up on the sidewalk and there was no problem whatsoever. It didn't even feel slippery. And I thought, wow, this is a this is an efficient machine up here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I lived in New Jersey for grad school, and uh, they could clear those roads by five a.m. It was amazing. So I got a new book today. Got a new book in. Yeah, from from the Amazon machine. Which, by the way, I, do you, do you have brand loyalty where you buy your books? Do you buy them with Amazon, or do you just go all over? Uh, Amazon is so easy, and two day yeah. shipping, and being in a rural county, we, you really can't go anywhere. Of course, yeah. our books, you're not really gonna find even at a Barnes and Noble. If- well, and Amazon has become sort of the ubiquitous used bookstore for you. Mm-hmm. The problem with Amazon, though, is used books. It, you used to love used bookstores because some mom and pop didn't know how much a book should cost. Mm-hmm. And you could go find, you know, a, a, a rare book for five bucks that should be 50 or something. And the problem is, is now everyone can look up the price of what it should be. So finding those bargains is pretty hard. But, uh, you know, you're right. Two-day shipping, pay three ninety nine. you get it the next day. Mm-hmm. That still boggles the mind. Oh, it's still. amazing. Or Kindle is instantaneous. And, and when the drones come, the drone wars, mm-hmm. you know, it could show up in a few minutes. Uh, I actually would look forward to that. But anyway. Yeah. No, but I had a new book come in 
Scott Hendricks, who is actually a Princeton Seminary guy, one of your old stomping grounds. Yeah. Did you ever have any class with him, by the way? Mm-mm. Did you ever take anything? Okay. It's been after my time. Well, he just retired a few years ago. Well, I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> I don't recognize that name. Is he at the university or the seminary? Seminary. Huh. He was he was there for a while. I, I don't... I graduated in 98, so from there. I think he was probably... Yeah, he was definitely still there. I think he was on the way out, though, because when I... I applied to Princeton Seminary when I was looking around for doctoral programs, and Hendricks would have been one of the guys I tried to work with. Mm-hmm. And he retired a couple years after that. So I think he retired 08, 09, somewhere in that range, which is probably why this book's out. You know, it's retirement money, trying <laughs> to sell it. But, you know, Yale does these wonderful biographies. They're, they're the king of biographies now. Hmm. They have, you know, biographies of every monarch in England. They just published this George Whitfield biography from Thomas Kidd out of Baylor. And they have the Jonathan Edwards biography from Marsden. I mean, the, the, the classic biographies. And Hendricks just wrote the Luther one in the run-up, I guess, to Luther Palooza next year for 2017. <laughs> Rock on. Yeah, 500 years. What happened? I don't know, but it's Luther. You know. <laughs> Wait, <done> but, yet. <laughs> uh, it, it was a very interesting book. You know, Reformation Studies is my field. And Hendricks is awesome. In fact, his book, his first book, his dissertation, was the one of the ones that I think pushed me towards this field for doctoral studies. Hmm. He just had that balance of history and the ideas behind what's going on. And he shows in that first book that Luther's fight isn't, we would say materially, it is about justification. But formally, the, 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 the real principle is the Pope's authority. And he shows that people weren't really been out of shape by Luther's comments so much as he wouldn't back down. They kept saying, shut up, shut up, shut up. And you know, cardinals would meet with him and say, you need to submit and to stop creating a ruckus. And he just goes, no, and he just keeps doing it. And so they made it, they excommunicated him mostly for his views on the in, Pope's authority. And subordination. Yeah, totally. But anyway, he came up with this full biography. I just got it. And it's really phenomenal. I mean, one, he's a master. He knows all the material. He's correcting things that, you know, with not just with latest research, that, that kind of fabled, oh, this article came out and it changes everything now. But more just the way he kind of pulls it all together. It's a real phenomenal book. The, the problem is, is we've noticed this with lots of other things. It riffs off of stuff. You'd have to know the pre-stuff to somewhat know what he's doing, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You'd have to know that Bainton gave this trajectory with Here I Stand, the classic book, that changed this, and then so-and-so wrote this. And, but he does it in a way where you don't see it, and you could just read it as a great biography. And I've started to suggest it to folks. But one of my favorite bits, this is all I'll give you for detail, but we, we used to think we knew when Luther was born. Mm-hmm. It turns out Luther didn't even know when he was born. Nice. <laughs> and there's this hilarious scene where he's sitting around a table with Melanchthon, his right-hand man, arguing about when he was actually born because neither of them know. <laughs> and so he's just like, I don't know. You know. <laughs> there's an old uh, uh, Looney Tunes bit with Daffy Duck when somebody asked Daffy, how old are you? Like, when were you born? He says, I don't know. I was pretty young then. <laughs> 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 it's a good what one. do you do, chap? I don't know. Well, students usually freak out when they when you give a date for somebody and there's a question mark in front of the first one. Right. And uh, particularly the ancient church, it's harder then because one of the interesting little nuggets is it was considered pagan to mark the year of your birth because you were born in sin. Interesting. So they didn't celebrate birthdays. What they would celebrate is your baptism day. That what they would call that your second birthday. Huh. So <laughs> I've I've heard of a couple of cases. Where historians are saying, have to correct people like, well, he calls that his birthday. He means when he was baptized, the anniversary of that, not his birth date. Interesting. 
Yeah, they don't have the cult of birthdays we have now where it's like, oh my gosh, your birthday must be awesome. Yeah. I don't think Luther got a smash cake for that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He didn't get to go to Great Wolf Lodge. <laughs> yeah. Here's Some a Nerf gun, Luther. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine, though? Oh my God. That'd be great. The cult of birthday. Yeah, it's, it is. I think it's become even more so one. You know, we resist the, you know, you have to put your kid through all these rites of passage. I think some of us, uh, some parents, now that I have my own kids, I think the instinct is to say, oh, I remember this being legendary when yeah. I was a kid. Epic. And it probably was pretty lame by the parents' standard. They're, they're just going, we just ordered some pizza and put in a VHS. I don't, you know. <laughs> you know? But we were like, awesome! Like this thing. Best night ever. Now that you're an adult, you can pay for more and, you know, all the urgency to do these awesome things is much more. But I, I mean, it's the, it's the classic. My kid would play with a box at a certain age rather than play with yeah. any of the stuff you give them. Yeah, a wise person I know said, uh, if you want to go on a trip, just go to a nearby hotel with a pool. Like, it'll be a lot yeah. cheaper. And I was like, yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. Don't drag them around somewhere when they're too young. Take them to a pool. We just did this, actually. Uh, I've said yes to a couple of speaking events. Uh, one actually upcoming. One we did about three weeks ago over the weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And it's the story I was telling you about before about the kid on the elevator asking me if I was a Calvinist or an Arminian. Oh, right, right. It was 40 minutes away. It's it's still the same city, but it was a hotel and we had two rooms and the kids, they were they thought we had taken them to How'd Hawaii. How'd you get two rooms? Nice. Well, that was the, the, the really generous offer. They said, hey, you know, we're a ministry. We don't have lots of money to pay you. And I, my in my head, I'm going, well, no one pays me lots of money for anything. So <laughs> How much are we talking? <laughs> yeah. What? You're talking 50 bucks? Yeah. <laughs> 60? 60? But they, they booked it. They have a rate and then they can book rooms easier. And so they said, how huh. about you can bring your family? And I always have a slight bit of guilt. So I called my wife and I said, hey, uh, would you want to come with? And they all, she and the kids were like, yeah, like that'd be fun. Get out. Mm -hmm. But the kids... The two oldest, they're old enough to know that they can jump on the bed, be silly. We went down to the beach. It was right on the beach. Mm -hmm. But we live five minutes from the beach anyway. So it's like, it's just a different beach. Right, like, right. But, <laughs> but, you know, hopefully it's a memory for them. You'll What's see. funny is kids in a hotel, because they're like, look, there's an ironing board. And you're like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> look, the door opens. <laughs> just, sma just smack them. Just shut up. Yeah. You know, I iron your crap all the time. Yeah, that's right. We used to uh, go in hotels. For some reason, we were obsessed with the... Um, Oh, gosh, I just blanked out on the name. A certain hotel chain you don't see much anymore. Uh, it'll come mm. to me. But we used to go because I always had a pool. We would, of course, do the elevator and press all the buttons because we thought that was oh. hilarious. You know, screw yeah. the next guy. And like, the, like Elf, you, you know. The, yes, the, the, yeah. Uh, it just go crazy on it. Yeah. And we also, the little poppers, the little, like it's kind of a firecracker, but not really. It's a little white paper thing. You throw it down oh, and it makes a snap. They're called snaps. 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 Yeah. Yeah, uh, and we would go up to the top and drop them off and watch them like fall and go pop. People think there's a gunfight outside. You know, <laughs> pretty weak gunfight. But yeah, hotels were pretty exciting as kids because we didn't really have access to a pool regularly. So I thought the mini bar was exciting. I didn't want anything in it. I just thought it was hilarious that they had put all this little crappy little food in there mm -hmm. and the little liquor bottles. I was like, very strange. Like. <laughs> I was like eight, you know, I had no idea that particularly parents with kids, like I need a drink at this point, <laughs> unwind. Um, but I'm like, oh, I'm full I, now. I never tasted alcohol. I'm thinking, Ma, Dad, what what does this do? Like, it's like a, it's like a, it's like only a shot's worth. It's like, uh-huh. Yep. That's right, kid. This is <laughs> the worst Coke ever. <laughs> it's so little. Tastes like metal. 
and it's all gone. Daddy's suddenly happy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And he's asleep. (laughs) No, but back to the Luther thing, it's always surprising me that my instinct, I think, usually is not to keep rereading the same about the same person. But I always find a lot, a lot of joy in it. Like when you really know something deeply and then you're reading something new that's well done and Scott Hendricks is awesome at it. It's, I don't know, it, part of me thinks like, oh, is this just like chewing the same old gum over again? You know, the kind of boring mm-hmm. thing. Uh, maybe that's my American sense of always wanting the cult of the new or something. I don't know. It might just be the way my brain works. I like learning different new things. No, I think it's pretty normal. Yeah, but I find every time I go back, or, or another example, the Bruce Gordon from Yale, Yale Seminary, he wrote the Calvin biography about six, seven years ago. Phenomenal. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. It, it finally pieces things together in a way that we've needed. Is it perfect? No. And I think that's always one of the interesting things about history, theology, any encapsulation. So when we did our doctorates, when we were at least thinking of a thesis topic, I don't know if you had this happen, but my thought was, how is there anything new to say about anything at this point? Mm-hmm. And I think I was treating it too much as the Indiana, at least in history, the Indiana Jones model. You know, you have to go find the the X marks the spot yeah. grail. And those really don't much exist. I mean, there's some out there that might be found. You know, a guy just recently, for example, discovered the Westminster Confession and the whole assembly of Westminster during the English Civil War. He discovered the minutes. Lost for... Are you serious? Yeah. It's, it was a guy at Cambridge, uh, and it was published through Oxford Press. I mean, you can imagine, here's a major confessional set of documents that wow. no one knew the minutes of it. No where one knew where do happened. you find them? Well, it, what, the story behind it is Whitehall burned down. This guy's name is uh, Chad Van Dixorn, by the way. He teaches at Reformed Seminary out of the D.C. campus. But Whitehall had burned down. That's where most of these types of documents were kept. It's a horrible thing. It's 1600s. And so we thought we'd lost him. You know, not long after the Civil War, actually, the English Civil War. Mm-hmm. And he was reading somewhere that they always had two sets of documents. They kept one in the House of Commons document base and then one in the House of Lords. <laughs> it's just, I think the story is he just goes to the House of Lords and he's like, huh, there they are. Just sort of sitting right on the shelf. No. Yeah. And uh, needless to say, he got funding to stay on as a postdoc at Cambridge and finish them up and edit them and all this type of stuff. So, uh, I mean, these just came out like maybe three years ago. So there's tons of doctoral dissertations to be had in this thing. But that's, a, that, that's, that's what I thought a dissertation was. You have to find mm-hmm. the, the lost you know, landmark. Well, and our friend Michael Ward discovered kind of a key to the Narnia books, which also yeah. got me to yeah. thinking like, yeah, you've got to find something really important. you got to find it. Yeah. Yeah. Spud Ward. The, that's right. The, there's Love Sport. Love Spud. But did I ever tell you the first time I met him? Uh-uh. He, so he was doing his dissertation out of St. Andrews. But of course, he was living in Cambridge. He was the chaplain at Peterhouse. Somehow, I mean, Lewis and Tolkien are subjects that I love. So somehow, I don't know if I Googled it. There was like a little blurb. I want to say it was like Christianity Today. So like real, like a, like a, a short half a paragraph kind of teasing out that this man had discovered something really pivotal about how the Narnia series holds together. Because until now, we've always just assumed they were. Yeah, they were random. Yeah, random. And it, the name Michael Spud Ward is so unique. It stood out. And so one of those roasts on Sunday after church, you know, at the Red Bull, mm-hmm. I went there and Simeon was there, of course, and Spud ended up sitting next to me. And he goes, hey, I'm Michael. People call me Spud. I said, Spud Ward? He goes, yeah. I said, oh, oh yeah, you're the guy that's doing the Narnia stuff. You found the seven planets. And <laughs> he's, he's, of course, not the guy. He's got a good poker face. He almost fell out of his chair because... <laughs> 
he thought for like a ha- like as as all doctoral students are, they're pretty paranoid. He thought for a second someone else had already done this, or like, and he said, "How did you know about this?" Like, because it was supposed to be kind of a, a tightly kept secret. I said, "No, no, no." I saw the blurb about you. Don't worry. <laughs> no wow, one's done this. That's funny. Uh, so that's how we got the image. Seems like he told me he, when he had the insight, he wrote in quickly to the Times Literary Supplement to kind of get that was something was. Maybe was, published yeah. so that, you know, he could track it just in case someone else had figured it out. But um, that's smart. no one really ever did. I have close friends. I mean, a close friend of mine has, so you talk about lost manuscripts. One of the key ones is like Thomas Cranmer. I mean, here's a guy for a founder of a movement, we got nothing <laughs> that he kind of left in his own hand. Really? Not much. Well, you got a couple sermons. You got a, a few things here and there. But you stack it up next to Luther Calvin, mm-hmm. you know, it's probably why there's not a lot of people that have called themselves Cranmerian or something mm-hmm. over the years. There's just not a corpus to build off of. Well, a friend, a close friend of mine discovered his theological notebook, like the thing he was writing his notes on, hmm. which you can only imagine. You know, what what is he thinking? What's his theology? You've always said to triangulate. And I remember one time I was talking to him about it. He just found them. I said, oh, man, where'd you find them? And he pauses and he, on, the, on the phone and he goes, a library in England. <laughs> he didn't want to <laughs> I say. Said, I said, buddy, I'm not going to go steal them. Like, I'm not going to go steal your thunder. Yeah. Uh, but but this, there's a bit of paranoia at times. When you, dis- when you do discover the Holy Grail type thing, you know, you, you keep it tight for a while. Uh-huh. But the dissertation thing, I, I thought that's what you had to do. But I found, no, usually what it is is all biographies are incomplete narratives. You can't say everything about somebody. So when I'm reading this Scott Hendricks biography, he's correcting things and and making me aware of things that I didn't know before. Technically, I'm an expert on Luther. And that that's more what a dissertation is, is being, uh, my advisor used to say, be part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're not going to, you're not going to finish the sentence or finish the, the paragraph and suddenly no one will say anything again. He says, just be part of the conversation, which was pretty refreshing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and looking back, it's impossible in three years to, to be able to create a magnum opus because many people are studying this for decades before they do anything like that. So you're really just offering a, a, a slice of an interpretation on something. So, yeah, just be part of the conversation. That's good. Didn't you recommend the Kittleson, Luther? Is it, That's right? Yeah, yeah, I do. The Kittleson one is very good. It's very approachable. Very approachable. It's got, I hate to say it this way, but it has pictures. Yeah. It has, well, sometimes you need to see the artifacts, the, the a reproduction of things. And the Hendricks biography has like, I, I, usually, I usually hate when they do this, but like in the middle of the book, there's like the glossy pictures. Mm-hmm. But by the time you get to that section, like half I the know, pictures yeah. have already been referred to and you forgot what they were. And then you look ahead and then you read and then you yeah. go back and then you're like, what page yeah. am I on? Yeah. yeah. Wait, what happened at the end? Oh, he died. No, it's a biography. What am I? Yeah. <laughs> well, he does the other thing. I, I, at first, I didn't like it because a lot of biographies do this. It's, it's like the Citizen Kane thing. They start with the death of the character. Right. So his opening chapter is on the death of Luther. And I'm going, just uh, what? Like, this is the end. Some, some guys can pull it off. And he does pull it off by the end. But it, it was just sort of interesting to hear um, all this stuff about Luther's death and its importance. So what are you reading these days? Not a lot, to be honest. Um, reading a bit of fiction, uh, we've, we've kind of, my wife's long wanted a book club, so we just read a book, um, my, what was it called? My name is, it was a really, really poignant book. My name is Lucy Barton, a novel by Elizabeth Strout. So that was a good read. And we're about to read one called The Rosie Project. And I think I'd mentioned before, I'd been reading kind of some 
we might even call them self-help books. One about tidying up and one yeah. about diet. So um, kind of that stuff. But usually in the semester, it, it, I'm getting ready for class or reading student writing, especially in the spring. I do a lot of writing intensive classes. So students are writing 15 pages of papers a person. And and uh, usually I'm kind of wallowing in that. Although I'm getting better at reading student essays. You really can know by the end of page one. Isn't that weird? Yeah. yeah. You, you, re- you can't read- say that to them. But no. The, yeah. So I hope they're not listening. But yeah, you read page one pretty closely and you kind of get a feel. And then you can kind of look ahead and skim and see if there's any surprises. But usually if they've nailed page one, they've nailed the rest of the paper. And if they haven't nailed page one, if they're still on the first paragraph and it's all over the place, then I mean, yeah. it, most people are pretty consistent in their writing. So uh, I find it goes two ways. Yeah. One is, you know, on page one, you keep reading to the end and you're like, yep. Didn't didn't pull up from the nosedive. Mm-hmm. The other is the body, or like after page two. So most of my papers are about fourteen pages or so, maybe a little bit more. Maybe the intro is where they they stink. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's they they do the millions of years ago. Like they try to do yeah. the whole arc ever since of the life. beginning of of mankind. Yeah, right. <laughs> the <laughs> ultimate question that. of life. <laughs> and then now let's talk about you know particularity and Luther. It's like. Uh, yeah. Just, just start with that. Ever since the beginning of humanity, we've wondered about justification by grace. <laughs> no, we haven't. I think they were mostly worried about fire. <laughs> and yeah. you know, why is this thing running at me with tusks or something like, like that? What's Paul doing here in a DeLorean? <laughs> He's here teaching us about justification. Hey, guys. Um, yeah, that's right. The Slee Stack. What is it called? The Slee Stack. Remember that? Land of the Lost. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then there's Paul. Or the opening to 2001 Space Odyssey. I mean, that, yeah. if there's ever a big arc, that's that's the one. That's the one. Nails I, I remember turning that movie on. I thought I'd rented the wrong one because it's just <laughs> back, still VHS days. Where's the lasers? It's like, what? I thought this was a space movie. It's like, it's like horrible monkey suits. Yeah. Have you watched that recently? I have, yeah. It's so good. I mean, the setting and the up. dialogue and the fact that there's really not a villain. It's like it's yeah. such an interesting plot because there's not a bad guy. Yeah, the whole of humanity is the villain. Yeah. What it's doing with its own tools. What it's doing, yes. And then this kind of this this need to grow and move and then this this machine that goes crazy. So it's like a weird mystery. What happened to this space station? And What are you doing? Yeah, yeah. and then it shifts What was to the guy's the, name? What, what are you doing, so-and-so? Ha, uh, yeah, Hat, yeah, no, Hal's the robot, Hal 9000. I forget the yeah, Hal, what are doing. Yeah. But uh, yeah, and that, that so it's, it's a great movie. It really stands up. I only knew that scene because I had seen Airplane. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Airplane wanted to, you know, there's this thing like where he has to do something. I don't land up, like get the autopilot to stop. I think it was Airplane. An awesome movie, by the way. Oh, Airplane. yes. The humor in Airplane is amazing. You can still watch it. I just, in fact, got it on uh, Apple TV because you can get it now high def. But so I, I saw this scene back in the day with Airplane and they're making fun of mm-hmm. 2001 Space Odyssey. I didn't. I had no idea what it was about. And then I watched Space Odyssey. I'm like, oh, oh okay. I get it. Yeah, I'm kind of similar. I knew the famous lines in the scene and the the the, the red eye for the for Hal, but yeah. Uh, and and I had seen it long ago. But until I watched it about five months ago, it had. I didn't remember much a lot much about it. But you usually have to remind people it's pre CGI. I have no idea how he's doing. Like yeah, half of those shots. Yeah, the weightlessness and all the detail about like there's instructions for him when he gets into the pod. It's it's really yeah. cool. Kubrick, man. Amazing. I've been on a Orson Welles kick lately, of all people. Uh-huh. I I forget how. How? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I think, I for one, uh, the youthful side of me always thought H.G. Wells and Orson Welles were the two I know. People. Isn't that not the yeah. most... Uh, exactly. You're like, wait, the guy that 
wrote Animal Farm, made a movie. Exactly. Like, I don't get it. Like, yeah. He lived like 200 years. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, Orson Welles, I'm usually somewhat inspired to see stories of people that burst onto the scene at age 22 and revolutionize things. Mm-hmm. And how long has it been since you've watched Citizen Kane? Oh, gosh. Probably. It's been forever. Forever. What's weird is the movie, it stands up all the way back until, what was it, 1941, somewhere in that range when it came out. I mean, there's, it's just almost just a few years after the silent movie era. It just finally can do sound. And what's funny is if you watch it, the joke about Citizen Kane is you're like, well, I don't get it. It's a good movie. Like most people young would say, it's a great movie. Mm-hmm. Then you realize it's the first to ever do like 15 things that had never been done before. It's the first asynchronous plot. This is why I thought of it. So it starts with his death, and the movie jumps all over the map, which we're used to now. But before, you didn't do that. But he did things like tracking shots. So there's this one, sh- one scene where he's on the ground, like the, the street level. He pans up on a, up like over the building. It sort of zooms into like the neon awning, or the neon lighting, rather, of the name of the restaurant. It goes through one of the letters, and then it, it looks down into the skylight. And then it cuts scene and suddenly you're in the room seeing the people. So it's just like big reveal without having to walk through the door. We're used to this now. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. But I mean, one, cameras weighed a ton. So how did you do that? And then if you found out, he like had to rig the light thing to separate. So he has to like get really close, stop, make the thing like open like the jaws of life, then keep going with the shot, mm-hmm. all this stuff. And like deep focus, you know, being able to see everything in the background and the, and the foreground. Again, all these things we're used to. And some YouTube channel like unpacked how amazing it was. And I thought, whoa. But anyway, so I went and watched it on, I think, Netflix or something. It's still a great movie. Like you're enthralled by it. Mm-hmm. The, the scale of it, all stuff. So Orson Welles was sort of a person. I was, I was looking into getting a biography of his because he was like 23. He'd never operated or knew nothing about a camera. He hung out with the cameraman for like a week. And he figured out how to make it better, how to get deep focus, see every, all the characters in the background. So he does the thing where like two characters are talking, but in the background you see something happening that is shaping the story. Hmm. Again, storytelling things we're used to, but back in the day they would, they would just do two camera like sitcom shots, like staring at the person's face. You ever watch American Experience on PBS? No. I try to dip into that occasionally. You know you're old when it? you watch it. It's, it's a long-running show on PBS that just kind of focuses on – important historical events. Um, mm. uh, it's a weekly show, but they did one on Orson uh, Orson Welles, the, the War of the Worlds bit, and it was really interesting kind of showing oh, yeah. old footage, and they'd interviewed some people and just talking about how terrified they were. Like they really, and the way he had yeah. sort of orchestrated <laughs> the whole thing and had yeah. cities in New Jersey and, and planned it and then kind of just pretended it was, you know, he was surprised at the response. But Yeah, he's like 21 when he does yeah, that. Yeah, the guy's a genius. And that's why he got the movie deal. So he didn't get the biggest like money movie deal ever, but he was the first director to be told, you can do whatever you want, we won't control you. Hmm. You know, that the fabled desire of all directors. And so he was a, he was a stage guy, and he, they said, we really want you to do something. And he said, I'll only do it if you don't... He wouldn't even let the directors, or sorry, the producers see it until it was all done. And it just blew everyone's mind. So he made some more movies, but... The other thing about it is, we were talking about this once before, mm-hmm. how do you follow that yeah. up? And, you know, the answer is, in his case, you don't. You don't keep revolutionizing the world. You have the two big moments. Yeah, you, you really don't want to peak early, which has kind of been my theory. That's why I've taken my time to 
<laughs> but if you pay peak too early, it's just it's just a mess for thirty years. So when are you, when are you going to turn on the volume? Man? I don't when know. Gonna, when Maybe peak? five years. I don't know. I'm still planning out the plan, so working on that. What's the <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you plan got you know what you're going to do. You just don't know when. I'm assistant to the assistant. You know, there you go. Plan the plan. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I started Ex Machina. That's on Amazon Video Streaming. Yeah. Uh, have you seen that one? I have it rented and downloaded, and you get like 30 days to watch it. Yeah, on iTunes? Yeah, I was going to watch it on a plane, but I forgot to. And renting, that, that's a good deal when it's like they'll show a, they'll, they'll have a dollar sale. But I've had that where I've rented it and then never watched it. And it's like, no, even though it's only a dollar, you still feel robbed. You're like, no, yeah. no, I have to. I'm only about halfway through. I, I can't finish movies with kids. It's like by the time you start, it's just too late. Yeah, or you fall asleep. Yeah, it's just too, you know, it's just like a commitment. But it, it, it's a great movie. It's very absorbing and very weird, and he's kind of trapped. And and the he's dealing with like humanity. Like, who are we? A bit. In it's that a bit, kind of and they bring up the Turing test. But it, it's kind of like this guy is visiting this computer genius who's built an AI, and he's in his he's in like his his house is out in the forest in this weird. Mm. So he can't really leave, and he can't call, and the house is computerized. Like it'll it'll go into lockdown mode. Oh. So he's kind of. Uh, so it has a bit of a suspenseful, like, horror feel to it because he's locked in there. Almost. And- you know, I did think of the old classic haunted house bit where you can never leave. It's, it does have a yeah. bit of that, a little paranoia because. The, Hotel California. Yeah. So the guy that invented the robot is kind of his boss. He's, it's kind of like a Google type company. So mm. it's um, sort of a creative genius type, but you don't know if you can trust him or he should trust him. And then there's the AI robot. And yeah, it's uh, I'm, I'm into it. So I want to finish it. It's interesting though. Movies are a lot like books. It's it, whether it's a you know nonfiction fiction. I'm always surprised how much our experience can be. I wouldn't say based on, but influenced by what we're told or what we think it's supposed to be like. Yeah. You get a book you're like, oh, this is the best book on so and so, and you read it and you're like, that's eh, pretty good. You know. <laughs> but if you had found it out just on the shelf, you would have bet that yeah. was amazing. But when amazing. someone messes, with, yeah. With the movie Gravity, was that for me? Everyone thought, mind-blowing, uh-huh. amazing. I was like, it's just a chicken space. Like, yeah. you know, I, I did good. actually really like it. I'm not, I'm not dogging it. But, I mean, you you thought it would have been like a transcendent experience. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you just go into another plane of existence having watched it. There's one time way back, Jenny and I, we really went to the movie theater and just watched the next movie. And it was Fargo mm-hmm. at Coen oh. Brothers. And, but we knew nothing about it. It just said, oh, it's, it's like a black comedy. You're like, oh, we'll watch it. And we sat there kind of like, oh, there's a wood chipper. <laughs> <laughs> so we were really traumatized, but we, you know, we didn't even know where Fargo was or anything about it. Um, and I've long thought of that was the great experience of, uh, you know, yes, not not being influenced either by opinion or marketing or whatever, just going in and kind of seeing it raw. And back to books, I still pine for the days. You mentioned used bookstores. The other pleasure besides finding something that they don't know maybe what it's worth is just perusing the shelves. And we don't get that with yeah. Amazon. You get a little bit because they can have other recommended books, but it's not like just walking and, and looking at a book or even the comic book store used to do that. Mm-hmm. We I would just, when I was a kid, buy comics that the covers look cool. Yeah. And, and Well, I, I think that's great. why I end up reading in genres and subjects that I'm not supposed to ever teach on because I don't have this pent up need to, oh, I got to know this and I got to read five more and mm-hmm. then the sense of the mountain of material. I mean, there was one study or one comment once by a historian that you couldn't read probably all the stuff that comes out on the English Reformation each year 
and keep up with that, much less all the backlog. Right. I thought, oh, what, what am I going to do? But, you know, when you read something that you're not supposed to be an expert in or teach on, you, you just read it like a, like that kind of abandoned, like, who cares kind of thing. Have you ever listened to Jim Gaffigan, the comedian? Yes, yes, hilarious. Yeah, yeah. My fa- one of his first CDs, he talks about when you're behind on a movie, like a movie <laughs> everyone's talking about. And he goes like, you see it like two years later. He's like, hey, did you guys see Heat? It's like, yeah, <laughs> like years ago, you know. It's like, I want to talk about it now. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's like, that tends to be me. Like, you know. Yeah. Citizen Kane. Uh, those people are dead, man. You know. <laughs> Best movie ever. The historian in me does that. but You have to hide it. That's when he's like, I've been re-watching it. Which yeah, really re-watch means it. I never watched it before. But I was... Did you know? Yeah. Well, should we stop there? Yeah, let's wrap it up. Sounds good. 